Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week we're asking, what's the story with the Women's Football World Cup? There's nobody in the country who hasn't heard about the Irish women's football team over the last two weeks. Not only did they achieve something that has never been done in this country before, qualifying for a Women's World Cup, they did it with a dose of controversy, being filmed singing an IRA chant during a celebratory song in their dressing room afterwards. But as the dust settles from that, many of us who have been following the team's exploits have been asked by non-football fans, hey, when is the World Cup? Or where is it? Or even daring to ask, how far could we get? I say us there because this almost feels like a disclaimer at the start of this episode. I have loved being a fan of this team for a long time. From sneakily watching games and work when they're played at annoyingly early times to getting out to Tala for a match, it's always felt like they would deliver us a really big moment. And in Scotland, on Tuesday the 11th of October, that moment came. Amber Barrett, a Donegal woman, came off the bench just days after the tragedy in her grandparents' home of Creesla and scored the goal that sent an Irish team to the pinnacle of their sport for the first time ever. So this week, we're going to focus mostly on the football, looking back at the journey to qualification and ahead to the group draw on the 22nd of October. To do it, I'm joined by the 42's Emma Duffy, who has been covering the team the whole way through this roller coaster journey. Emma, I say roller coaster because, spoiler, this was not inevitable. We always hope that Ireland's national teams will get into these big tournaments, these big summer fun fests. Um, but recently, especially in football, we haven't you know, got there. We've become used to disappointment. How clear was it that this team was going to go all the way? Yeah, I think there was a feeling, Sinead, that it, it was coming, but then not necessarily at the same time. Like, remember that this is a first ever major tournament they've qualified for. I suppose there were signposts towards success in recent times, but then in this campaign in particular, there are a few very pivotal moments, both on the pitch and off it. So even just looking back at results, the 2-1 win in Finland, the 1-1 draw in Sweden against the second best team in the world, these are things that, that really stand out. And I suppose there were a lot of moments more so off the pitch as well before the campaign, which I know we're going to delve into the pay parity massive sponsorship deals with Sky and Cadbury's but then just that growing momentum and belief on the pitch probably mixed with a little bit of luck and then certain results turning in the team's favour in the latter stages of group qualifications that made it really clear and it made those heights that they could hit a little bit more obvious towards the end. So what exactly did they have to do to qualify? Yeah so they had eight group matches and so Ireland went into the qualification group as third seeds. So ideally you'd be looking at finishing second in the group to qualify for a playoff. So the the top team qualified directly for the World Cup, which was Sweden, as I mentioned already, second best team in the world. Probably no doubt about that. They were kind of runaway winners of the group. Um, But then the whole focus from Ireland's perspective was on that second place finish and to get two results against Finland. So a win here in Dublin and a win in in Finland as well, that I suppose sparked their chances of finishing second. And then I'm not too sure if you've completely, if you or the listeners have read up completely on the whole convoluted playoff system and how to qualify for that. But a lot of results went in Ireland's favour, which allowed them to have a one-off playoff match, which was against Scotland in Hamden Park um, in, in recent weeks. And then it was just a matter of, I suppose, winning that and again, hoping that results elsewhere went in their favour. But everything f- fell into place nicely and all the stars aligned and 
it happened, which is which is mad to say. <laughs> which is that bit of luck that you talked about, which Irish teams don't always get. It's not an Irish woman in charge of the team. It's a woman called Fira Pau. Has she had a big impact or was her arrival as the, as the team manager um, kind of the catalyst that this team needed? Yeah, I think she's had a massive impact tonight. I suppose any players you speak to on the team, they'll talk about the belief and the confidence that Vera Pau has instilled. Um, she's an experienced coach. She knows how to win. I suppose it's it's well documented that she doesn't implement the most ambitious game plan. It's quite defensive orientated, but it has proven to work. And I suppose it was probably just maybe she was that that missing piece. Um, just in terms of that confidence and belief, she played a lot of games against higher ranked opposition so that her team could learn to cope with higher pressure and and more intensity and that type of thing. And that has certainly paid dividends. And that's how I suppose those monumental results against Finland and Sweden came to came to fruition. So yeah, definitely I think she's had a massive, massive impact. But it's not just Pau, it's I suppose what the players have been doing as well, Sinead. Yeah, just to look at the players for a minute, we are used to seeing the the men's international team and, you know, most of those players are playing in England. Where do our women's team play usually? So the vast majority play overseas um, off the squad against Scotland, just four from 27 or 28 play in the Women's National League in Ireland, which is which is completely amateur. So 12 of the team play in the Women's Super League in England, which is the top flight for women over there, the equivalent of the Premier League. Then there's a good chunk in the championship, same as the men, the second flight in England. And then there's a few dotted around in the US, Germany, Italy, Denmark. Scotland. I think I've remembered everyone there, but I suppose the, the vast majority is definitely in the in the women's super league Sinead. So so there are some commonalities there. We have loads more questions about the team and the achievement because a lot of probably what would have been answered over the last two weeks was overshadowed by the events I talked about in, in the introduction, the singing of the IRA song in the dressing room. At the time um, of that kind of the, the in the haze of that controversy, UEFA said that an investigation would be started. Is there an update on how that's going? Not to my knowledge, Sinead. Um, I, I haven't heard anything since. Um, so I suppose the, the statement that UEFA came out with was that there was an investigation for inverted commas potential inappropriate behaviour by Irish players and, and they stated that information on this matter will be made available in due course. Now I suppose it's only a few days in the difference between now and then so I'm not sure when we can expect an update but I suppose the sense is that this is standard procedure, a fine will likely follow but probably nothing more stringent. Thanks, Emma. We're going to leave that controversy there because, as I said, it has been talked about a lot. And we have a lot more to talk about, including our chances at the World Cup. We'll get to that later. First, I want to roll back the clock a bit to 2017 because that was a big moment for this team, a catalyst, some might say. Can you explain what happened during that year? Because the players were on the brink of a strike. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people will remember that kind of landmark day that landmark press conference in Liberty Hall and even if you don't remember the exact details you'll just remember hearing a little bit about it or seeing I suppose the pictures from the paper those striking images of the 14 players and sitting in a press conference in Liberty Hall I suppose in a in a last ditch attempt to fight for for fairness and to highlight the unacceptable treatment of the team and extraordinarily low quality working conditions that they were expected to perform under. I suppose it was all laid bare there and then. And and off the 14 players, six actually played the full game against Scotland. I was just researching that 
for a piece last week and I thought that really stood out. So I suppose, yeah, there there was um what happened that day. So 14 international players alongside the PFAI representatives, which is the Professional Footballer Association of Ireland, basically took on the FAI. And, and this, has, this was something that had been going on for quite some time. I think it had been going on for two years or so. Basically, players, very basic requests and demands which weren't being met by the FAI and there were quotes I suppose that really caught the headlines that day Stuart Gilhooley the PFAI solicitor spoke of the team being fifth class citizens and the dirt on the FAI's shoe and I suppose the story Sinead that we all remember really catching the eye was the fact that the team had to change in and out of tracksuits and airport toilets. And that wasn't the biggest story that day, but I think that's something that everyone really just clung on to because it's such a vivid image that these girls are after going and representing their country and here they are having to change out of the tracksuit to hand it back to the FAI. It's mad to think about, but I'm just going to read out the list from the booklet from the PFAI that day, just off off, I suppose, what the team were looking for. So it was access to nutritionist and individual strength and conditioning programs, gym membership for the squad, hotel accommodation to include at the very least working and reliable Wi-Fi, apparel for training to be provided to the squad prior to meeting up at the airport, more home-based training sessions, all non-professional players to receive loss of earnings documented from their employers, goalkeeper coach to remain for the campaign, not change from game to game, match fee for all international fixtures of 300 euro and then bonus for competitive fixtures of 150 euro per win and 75 euro per draw so i think i have them all there i could be missing one at the end it's a it's it's almost a pitiful list isn't it emma exactly it's it's very basic stuff Sinead like and i suppose when you think back to the time there were amateur teams, GA teams being treated better than that. Like it, it was embarrassing. And then just everything that happened thereafter, the fact, I suppose it was well highlighted and well documented at the time that, that the FAI were unwilling to engage with the PFAI, but then the team refused to play a friendly against Slovakia. If it came to it, the FAI put out a statement saying they had tried to engage with the team. Then the team boycotted training and eventually an agreement was reached between all parties in the early hours of of that night after they boycotted training and they did play that game. But it's, it's just mad to think back to that. But without that, would we be here? That's the big question. And it's only five years. So what has actually changed? What is their treatment like now? Yeah, so I suppose, as I mentioned at the top, before this campaign, there was, I suppose, a lot of improvements made in particular and I know obviously around that time I suppose the 300 euro match fee was put back into place and another big grievance they had was that the 30 euro per day payment during international camps was withdrawn that was all put back into place and then I suppose in August 2021 obviously a massive massive improvement was made when equal pay was reached or pay parity between the men's and the women's squad so what happened was the Irish men's team their fees were reduced and it's understood they were in the region of two and a half thousand uh, per game and then the FAI matched the contribution to ensure that women's pay is aligned so the women were before that it was 500 euro so it's it's unclear what the amount is at the minute but obviously 
a lot has changed and there are there is much better pay and conditions and deservedly so. So the men, just to make sure we have this correct, so the men said that they would take a reduction in their fee if that reduction was used to increase the women's fee. Yes, correct. So it seems like there's a lot of goodwill between the two teams. Yeah, definitely. There, there is more so than, definitely more so than rivalry. And I suppose the women's team captain, Katie McCabe, would often talk about negotiations involving Seamus Coleman, who's the men's team captain. There does seem to be that little bit of support. But one thing just when I was preparing for this, which I hadn't really thought about, there wasn't a whole pile of visible support from the current men's team on social media, particularly after qualifying, which is obviously a major moment for any team. I was I was quite surprised at that. And obviously, you know, there was all that controversy and I don't know if it was a conscious decision not to be involved in that, I guess. But the very least they could do was share a few a few tweets or, you know, share the FAI's Instagram story or something like that. Like or think back to the Euros and you had players like Jordan Henderson wearing Leah Williamson on the back of his of his England jersey. Yeah, I thought I thought that was particularly striking, but I suppose in the grand scheme of things and just from speaking to the players, there does seem to be that goodwill. But then from the outside looking in, you are questioning that little bit of a of a gap in the support, perhaps. Are we still looking at um, major change needed in the public perception of women's sport or are we a lot further along the road? Look, I think a little bit of both, Sinead. Like, I do think that we are an awful lot further along the road. Things have I suppose the public perception of women's sport in particular has changed an awful lot since say 2017 if we use that as our as our point of of interest here and I do think look visibility has been it's night and day to back then and you think of things like the 20 by 20 campaign the can't see can't be slogan like what that has done for women's sport across the board is is massive. But then I do think another thing is success. And us Irish people, we love a bloody bandwagon to jump on. Like there's there's <laughs> no denying that much. There is no denying that. And look, here we have an Irish team in a World Cup, a first ever major tournament. Like this is going to be so many people's Italia 90 moment or, or even before that when I suppose men's football um, just exploded when when they reached major tournaments. So yeah, I do think definitely there has been massive, massive increases. But like anything, it is probably always a case of lots done, more to do. And but I do think we will see that next summer. I suppose there are there are complications. The fact that um the time difference it's going to be rising up early for for games if you're in Ireland. There's not going to be that going to the pub and everyone watching the game together, which I think we saw during the summer with the Euros in England. And it was probably the first time I had seen, you know, people going to the pub to watch a women's match, but just watching it as a match and talking about it as it should be talked about. And it is probably a little bit unfortunate that we won't get that next summer. But, you know, it's amazing what success will do and what that bit of momentum behind the team will do. So I think we will see that come more and more into the fore and like even if you if you just look at the following behind this team it's increased and increased and increased and I think there was more than 350,000 TV viewers watching the playoff game against Scotland which on RT which breaks the record for women's sport in this country like that's just amazing. Yeah I didn't actually even get a ticket for the last game because I was on holiday and they sold out within a couple of hours so when I went to get one they were gone. Um so you talked a little bit about the parallels to Italia 90 and there's kind of parallels on the pitch as well. Just 
you mentioned earlier about the team being a bit defensive. Tell us a bit more about what the, the tactics and the style or um, how this team play. Yeah, so I think they, they probably have that clear identity now and Vera Pau has said it, the players have said it, reporters following the team have said it. It's not the prettiest to watch, but it does work. It's effective. I think it's probably something in the Irish DNA. Irish people just... Irish footballers love defending and Louise Quinn epitomises that if, if you're familiar with the the experienced defender and just stalwart and legend that Louise Quinn is for this team. So yeah, I suppose the team, they're resolute, they're hard to break down, they're a tough nut to crack and I suppose a team that not many will want to play against next summer, I don't think. But I think, I suppose they are very realistic about their play. It's something that Vera and the players always talk about. They... I suppose they know their strengths, they know their weaknesses and they know that this system works for them and this setup works for them. So then for goals, you're probably looking more so at the counter-attack. Amber Barrett's iconic goal in Hamden, it came from such. Um, and then set pieces as well. So Katie McCabe's free kicks, Megan Campbell's throw-ins. I don't know if, if people have, have seen them or fallen quite in love with them yet, but just an incredible weapon to have in the team's armory. So yeah, that's, I suppose, just... So, a just, explain, so just explain that to people, uh, what Megan Campbell does with her throw-ins and why they're so different. Good question, Sinead. I wish I could explain it properly. She, I don't, I don't understand what she does. She runs, like, basically, okay, we all know what a throw-in is in football when the ball goes out and the other team gets a throw and it's a fairly straightforward just way to restart the game. Generally, just throw it to someone's foot, get get play going again but Megan Campbell can literally unleash a cross into the box from a throw-in so she takes a bit of a run-up she her back can hyper extend um, and then she just slings it into the box like it's just it's mad think Rory Delap that type of thing only Megan Campbell's better <laughs> but <laughs> she's had a, a really tough road with injury through the years she's spoken about I suppose fearing that she would lose that long throw-in but thankfully it stayed and like I actually remember I, I played against Megan when I was younger and I remember it was at the Gainer Cup which is like the the women's equivalent of the Kennedy Cup so basically representative teams playing against each other and I remember us all just outlining the street watching her throw the ball up and down the street and being absolutely stunned at this. Um, so we've mentioned Megan Campbell, you've mentioned Louise Quinn. What other players are most important to us? Because we do have a couple of superstars. Yeah, superstars, I suppose. Katie McCabe and, and Denise O'Sullivan are certainly the world-class stars on the team. So Katie McCabe has been playing at Arsenal the last few years. And I suppose Arsenal are one of the best women's teams, um, certainly in Europe anyway. They haven't won a Champions League, but they're they're getting there. And um, Katie is one of the stars of that team as well. So just that shows just how important she is to us then the same with Denise O'Sullivan and just so I suppose Katie's a a left-sided player so she generally plays left wing but often plays left wing back we obviously want her to play a higher up and if possible because she is a goal threat but we don't always get that then Denise O'Sullivan is a, a midfielder and she is just your ultimate workhorse box to box player she works like a dog but then she has the skill to go with it as well she can just produce a moment of magic and flip a game on its head and she obviously got the assist for amber barrett's goal and that kind of just sums up her class um, and then i suppose it's important to mention courtney brosnan and goal who has been absolutely incredible for the team and i think she kind of just sums up the journey this team is on because things weren't going 
very very well for Brosnan I suppose in the past she had a few high profile errors there were tough times for her but she has just completely turned her game around and she is the most solid player on the pitch which you obviously need as a goalkeeper but she's something like five clean sheets in a row um, which is incredible and obviously that's down to the defence too as I mentioned Louise Quinn, Diane Caldwell, Nee Fahey these just stalwarts that we have at the back I think between them they have probably over 300 caps they're probably a combined age of 100 and they're just incredible they're so important to this team so yeah that's just to mention a few but obviously it's a it's a squad game as well it's not just about the 11 that started on the pitch it's about the entire squad and then even girls who are on the fringes as well pushing them to get into that squad it's you know it's it's about it all coming together it's not just the 11 on the pitch yeah when you speak of Courtney Brosnan I'm reminded of what you said about the 2017 you know that they didn't have a consistent goalkeeping coach so how are you going to improve your goalkeeper if you don't have a consistent coach and we did see at the Euros over the summer like the quality and standard of goalkeeping in the women's game has just skyrocketed to a level that you wouldn't really have thought believable a couple of years ago which takes us again to the tournament and to the world cup next year we'll probably all be up on saturday morning for the draw um who do we want to face who are we hoping to avoid what are are the possibilities for the irish team yeah so ireland are in pot three so that means we'll draw a team from pot one pot two and pot four um, so pot one, you're looking at the co-hosts, Australia and New Zealand, and then the highest ranked teams in the world. So USA, Sweden, England, Germany, France and Spain. Um, so ideally there, you'd be looking at New Zealand. They're a little bit further down the rankings. I think they're 21 or 22. So Ireland are 24. So I suppose they're in there as a co-host. But then again, you've seen that Ireland have got results against big teams like like Sweden in the past it's not within their within their capabilities but I suppose you'd be looking to avoid your USA's your England's these big big names in women's football at the minute who have that momentum behind them England obviously as you mentioned winning the Euros last summer and they actually bet USA in a friendly recently and so they'll be coming in with pretty pretty high confidence as they always do to major tournaments <laughs> um so yeah then looking at pot two Sinead, you have canada netherlands brazil japan norway italy china pr and korea republic so that's just in order of rankings so i suppose brazil canada netherlands all pretty big names in in the women's game and then you're looking towards maybe a career republic because they are the lowest ranked there now i'm not overly familiar with with that team and their style of play likewise with china pr it'd be more so the the european teams that i'd know a little bit more about so look they're all pretty sticky in in that pot but they're higher ranked and obviously to, to progress you would need to be beating a higher ranked team and then if you look at pot four so it's nigeria philippines south africa morocco zambia and then the three playoff winners so as i mentioned earlier the convoluted playoff system uefa have handled it well fifa have handled it magnificently where they're basically going to a, a playoff tournament in new zealand in february so 10 teams compete there three teams go through one of the teams competing there is portugal who are obviously pretty decent they they had a quite an impressive euros campaign and uh, for what was expected of them they're ranked above ireland so you'd be hoping to avoid them if they qualify for the for the finals as expected but there is one thing that no more than two european teams can be in the same group 
so that could work in our favor so yeah you'd be looking at a zambia who are well down the rankings ireland could you'd expect them to take care of anyone in that pot so basically in short and the draw i am hoping for is at the minute new zealand south korea and zambia and the one that i would like to avoid ideally is usa or england even though there would be massive hype around that game (laughs) um brazil canada i suppose as seconds netherlands perhaps but ireland did get a result against them a few short years back too and then portugal if it did work out like you'd you'd take any of the any of the teams in pot four i'd imagine pretty confidently so should we get our hopes up or just hope that we win that uh, pot four game and hopefully get a get a draw or sneak something out of the pot two game yeah um i suppose we'll wait till the draw anyway see what happens how it unfolds um it is a world cup it's a first ever one for this team so I suppose being honest, you'd have to kind of consider everything bonus territory from here, as you say, beat the pot four team and then you're looking at getting a result against the higher ranked team. So yeah, as third seeds, it is always a big ask to get out of your group, but a favourable draw would obviously make that more possible. And then, you know, football, anything can happen, especially at a tournament. So you never say never but it is important obviously to be realistic and as I said that's been a mantra for Pau and for the team through this campaign it's something they've lived by and it seems to be working so I'd be pretty happy for them to continue along those lines so give us the details when is the World Cup actually happening where is it happening and how will people watch it so it's in Australia and New Zealand next summer from the 20th of July until the 20th of August so it depends on what group you're drawn in, whether your group will be played in Australia or in New Zealand. And then moving into the knockout stages, you'll be moving about. So the team will be moving about. And then just on how people will be able to watch it, there's no confirmation just yet. But I suppose seeing as RT and TG Cahar showed all the games from the 2019 World Cup and from Euro 2022, when Ireland weren't even there, you'd imagine it will be the same again. Yeah, and as you said, a lot of early mornings for us all. But even though they are early mornings, this is going to be huge for the sport, isn't it? Oh, absolutely massive, Sinead. And like I've always said it, you've always said it, that qualification for a first ever major tournament is exactly what women's football in Ireland needs to bring it to the next level and exactly what this team needs to bring it to the next level. Because I suppose if you look at the team, um, you know, they're not all exactly young Voting footballers like you know as I mentioned Louise Quinn, Fahi, Diane Caldwell in defence um, like this kind of was last chance saloon for them um, and then if you look at the next World Cup you know Katie McCabe's not going to get any younger same as Denise O'Sullivan and qualifications only going to get harder so it would have been an awful shame for say those five players but I, it could relate to any player for them not to qualify for a major tournament and not to feature on the world's biggest stage but the game is just going to explode and that's a quote that's been used time and time again over the past few weeks but it is exactly what's going to happen and I suppose you look at what Euro 2022 did for for England and for women's football in England and you look at the WSL now the Women's Super League and increased attendances increased media coverage increased interest in general I think we'll see the same here and it's a story for another day but if you look at the Women's National League here 
there is talk about going semi-pro and it seems to be heightening and heightening and heightening but that's going to just hit a new barometer now because I suppose this does feel like the tipping point um but yeah it's just it's going to be massive for the sport and I think it's probably beyond nearly a lot of people's wildest dreams even when you think back to 2017 those five short years ago where where this team would be now yeah, because I'm just thinking, like, getting goosebumps, the idea of just girls and boys playing World Cup this summer because they're watching the women's team. Um, it does kind of put a little bit of a sharp focus on the men's team, doesn't it? That there has been no big tournament for them. Um, you know, there's no sponsor for them. And they're now watching the women's team. You know, they have a sponsor in Sky Ireland. They have a major tournament to uh, prepare for. And it, it, it does all feel a little bit, you know, dire for them. Yeah, definitely. It certainly highlights it. But then again, like it doesn't, it doesn't. Like I suppose it is completely different at the same time. And it's something we probably always say about women's sport, like that avoiding comparison is important at times and to take them on their own merits as well. But I don't think there's any question that the men's team will will have to pull their socks up and look, hopefully it will be uh it will be that spark as well that that they need to. And um, it has been, what is it, Euro 2016, the last the last tournament the men qualified for, and then a World Cup year going way further back than that. Um, but as you say, I suppose the fact that they have no sponsor, that is obviously still a concern. Um, and yeah, I suppose it, it does it does put it in a sharp focus and probably does raise the debate elsewhere um, but I do think it's important to take this Irish women's team achievement on its on its own merits and in its own I suppose within its own realms and and to just celebrate that for what it is Emma thank you so much for making your debut on The Explainer and I'm sure we'll be talking to you again before July 20th when we are heading down under thanks so much Sinead cheers for having me Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Emma for her expertise on this episode. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Nikki Ryan and Eva Barry. If you enjoyed it, please consider supporting us so that we can continue to make episodes just like this one. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber or make a one-off donation. You can also leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a great way to make sure other people will listen and love it too. Thank you and catch you next time.